Good morning. It's good to see you all today. And thank you to our music team, as usual, for leading us in song. Be fun today. We have got, I think, one of the more humorous passages in John to look at today. I'm looking forward to going through it. It's also serious. And for the blind man that's been at the center of our story for a little while, uh, it's going to be a pretty significant day for him, but it's still kind of funny. But as we prepare to look at it, I want to take a look today, not at our text for our reading of God's Word this morning, but at Jesus praying for the person who's in our text in John chapter 17. And so as you're able, would you take your copy of God's Word and stand with me and turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, and we'll begin reading this morning in verse 6, which says this, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them. And truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for sending your Son and for the way in which that incredible love that you have for your Son, that incredible relationship that you share within your Trinitarian existence has been expanded to envelope unworthy sinners. We come this morning because you have chosen to take what is yours and to reveal it to us, to do so through Christ, to do so by the ministry and power of your Holy Spirit and to draw us into fellowship with yourself. And so we count ourselves so blessed today to bear your name and to be sent into this world to represent your son. May we be encouraged to do so with greater fidelity and courage as a result of our time in your word. And this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <laughs> Begin with a question today. Where do these beauties come from? How do precious gems form? Uh, some of you guys uh, are into such things. 
and could probably give a long list of all sorts of different conditions under which gemstones can form. But these particular stones, uh, we've got aquamarine, emerald, garnet, zircon, and topaz on the screen there. These are commonly formed, as I learned this week, in a rock formation called a pegmatite. Now, how many of you knew what a pegmatite was before you came this morning? See, it's very educational already. <laughs> I learned pegmatites are a kind of rock that forms in cooling magma. In cooling magma, where water concentration in the magma itself that's been superheated and kind of woven through there reaches a saturation point where it's able to sort of condense into these pockets of water within cooling magma that are just loaded with ion-rich, basically gem-forming superjuice. And as they cool, those crystals begin to form quite slowly, so it was thought, over time as the magma cools. In fact, some of these crystals can be quite massive. They've got one they've discovered that was 42 feet long. It's a big crystal. And it was thought to take about a thousand years for any significant crystal formation to take place within these cooling magma pegmatites. However, just this month, an, a paper was published in Nature Communications because they noticed that some of these crystals didn't seem to quite fit what they would expect to find for something that had formed over a thousand years. And as they began to study them, they realized under the right conditions, these crystals can grow by up to one yard per day. That's fast. And today, I think we have the privilege in our text to observe the precious gem of faith being flash formed almost right before our eyes in the life of this man who was born blind that we met a couple weeks ago and that has met the Messiah. Now faith does not always grow this quickly. It doesn't always form this quickly. You guys know your testimonies. For some of you, the process that God took you through of first coming to hear of Jesus Christ and fully accepting him as the Messiah was a long one. But sometimes it can happen quite rapidly, and we're going to see that today. And I think studying how this takes place reveals common patterns that we encounter when we grow in our own faith, and it will help us to have realistic expectations for what we can expect to face in our own lives and how those things that sometimes come about as a result of our faith growing are not for our undoing but are indeed for our growth. And so I want to look at three stages in our faith this morning and three expectations that should accompany those stages. And that'll be our outline this morning. Your first point is this. When you change, expect controversy. We are now back in our passage in John chapter 9. We're beginning in verse 13. Read with me John 9, 13 to 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind... Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, 
What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. John gives us two bits of information here at the beginning uh, to help us understand what's going on. First is the setting. Second is the problem. The setting is this. This man, born blind, is brought to the Pharisees, and he is you know, doing something that would not have been unexpected in that culture. Pretty much anything interesting or of significance that happened in this culture, you needed the Pharisees to weigh in on. And so you had to bring them in, and, well, what do you think about this? Is this okay? You know, And they would give their, their opinion. Uh, it was a, almost a smothering kind of leadership that the Pharisees had in the culture at this point. But they, they bring him in, uh, they... They, they discuss what's going on with this big miracle that's happened. But I want you to also notice, uh, for many of your translations, the word brought has a little asterisk in front of it. Some of your translations, you'll notice that. And that's the way that the translators tell us that in the original, the author is using a present tense verb to talk about something that happened in the past. Because in the Greek, when you want to start storytelling you switch to the present to take you into the moment. And so it literally says here, and they are bringing to the Pharisees the man who was born blind. And that, that little switch in tenses happened first in the last verse, verse 12. And it happens here in this verse, happens in verse 17. It's, it's like this is the part of the story where John sort of leans forward on his chair if he was telling the story to some of the original disciples. And he's like, and then this is what happened. Pay attention. This is kind of the cool part of the story. And so I think we want to kind of lean forward as well and say, okay, what's about to go down here? Because John wants us to get caught up in the moment and in the story of what's happening. And that story continues then in verse 14 with the problem that is going to uh, be at the center of this first discussion, and that is that Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. Uh-oh, right? Healing on the Sabbath. Here we go again. Big no-no. God had never said you couldn't heal on the Sabbath, so the Pharisees fixed that for him, and they decided to make that rule. Uh, you were allowed to intervene with, with a, some kind of a life-preserving medical assistance. If you know you found somebody bleeding out on the street, you're like, it's a Sabbath. Uh, you were allowed to, to you know, put pressure on the wound, uh, but you were not allowed to heal or do any healing work that was not treating something life-threatening on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. And of course, Jesus is concerned very much with what his father has said, and very little with what the Pharisees have said. And that will continue to be a source of great frustration to them. We continue then in verse 15. And verse 15 sort of is that summary of what was probably a more lengthy official interrogation by the Pharisees of the man. What happened? How did this all t come to take place? And the bottom line is the other man told them the facts of the case. He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. It's pretty, pretty straightforward, guys. This is a miracle. Uh, there's no trick other than it's a miracle. Uh, and then we see their response. Some look of the Pharisees here look at only when the miracle took place. Uh, wait a minute. Whoever did this to you cannot be a righteous person because no matter what happened, it happened on the Sabbath. And so they're focused with that. And some can only look at what the miracle was. They're saying, doesn't matter when it happened, 
how do we explain what has happened? The miracle itself. And so there's, there's this big fight. I don't care what he did. It was a Sabbath. And I don't care when he did it. It's a miracle. And there's a reason why both sides have a bit of a point here. Because in the Old Testament, God had told them, hey, even if somebody comes working signs and wonders, but is leading you away from Yahweh, reject such a one. And if it was a teacher within Israel, even stone such a one. So just because something amazing had happened didn't necessarily mean you should immediately say, okay, we'll do whatever you say. Remember, Moses can turn his staff into a snake, but so could the conjurers of Egypt. And so that there was some reason to say, hey, if, if he's breaking God's law, then we need to reject him even if he's doing cool tricks. Now, the issue at hand is that he's not actually breaking God's law. He's breaking their law, and they had lost the distinction. The other side, though, says, this is not your normal kind of parlor trick. Right? This isn't like I have three cups, guess which one the ball's under. This is a man born blind who sees. This is not the kind of thing that you counterfeit easily. Uh, and so that would seem to give some credibility to his message. So they're having a fight. They're having a discussion. And they had this sort of deadlocked theological debate. And so they decide to try to work through that deadlock in an unexpected way. They're going to ask the blind man to chime in with his opinion which is kind of humorous to me because since when do they care what he thinks? So they said to the blind man, verse 17, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said he's a prophet. They want his opinion as an eyewitness, as it were, on the person of Jesus. His answers already show a growth of faith. Right, we're already observing that something is changing in this man. If you recall, only a few verses ago, back in chapter 9, verse 11, he had simply referred to Jesus as the man who is called Jesus. Now, when he is pressed by this controversy, he boldly asserts Jesus is a prophet. He has moved from, there's this guy, his name apparently is Jesus, and I see to I am now convinced that man speaks for God. That is a righteous man who speaks for God. And that response is going to send the Pharisees into another bout of consternation. But first I want to stop and consider briefly what's already taken place in a couple quick lessons for us as we begin. And the first is this. When you follow Jesus, you change. When you follow Jesus, you change. Your life is not going to be the same when you say, I want to follow Jesus. I think in America, we sort of have this idea that religion is a thing you can kind of tack on to life to sort of, you know, boost your, your mental health, to sort of help you feel better, cope with life, maybe build some community, get into good relationships, be a better person. But that in essence, nothing has to really change about your hobbies, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what your heart loves, your entertainment. I mean, we can just kind of keep all that stuff that we like already pretty much intact, and we can just sort of stick this thing on, on to the end. And that's just not how it works. To follow Jesus Christ is to become a new creature and to begin to be transformed by the renewing of our minds into the image of Jesus Christ himself. And that is going to cause 
radical change in our lives. And so we should expect that. But then we should also expect that when we change, people react. Now this blind man had a very visible, powerful external change. He went from not seeing to seeing, and that got people's attention. But he also went from being somebody that was probably almost entirely ignored by the religious community to a problem. They now had to give an account for and figure out what to do with the change that had taken place in this man as a result of the time he had spent with Christ. And you will notice this as well in your lives. When you change, people will react. It will affect the equilibrium of your relationships. And some of you have already noticed that. Perhaps you grew up and you had this circle of friends, maybe in high school, maybe in college, and you guys just all kind of hung out. You're on the same page, like to do the same things, like to talk the same way. You got saved. And all of a sudden, they were like, I, I don't know if you really fit into the little clique anymore. I don't know if you really are part of us anymore. You just seem different. And that can be hard. It can cause controversy. People don't quite know what to do with you. But here's the thing about controversy. It reveals faith, both true and false. And we see this. And we see this all the time. A person says, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. And people around them go, oh, please don't. Right? Don't ruin a good thing. Have you got religion? That's what they used to say. Now they say, you're a hater or something, you know, really cute like that. You have then a choice you have to make, just like this man did. When they said, who do you think Jesus is? He could have said, I don't know, you tell me. Right? He could have said, uh, you know, who, who am I to guess? Oh, great cultural guardians, you, that I don't want to make angry. And don't we see this sometimes? You'll, you'll see... A person who says, I've, I've come to know Christ, maybe a famous person who's got a national platform, and then instantly there's the pounce, right? All the pundits, all the commentators, all the articles, all the interviewers, well, what do you think about this issue? What do you think about this issue? What do you think about this issue? And there's a choice. Do they say, well, I'm still new to this whole following Jesus thing, but whatever he said, I'm with him. Or do they say, well, my, my, my Jesus would, would agree with you, and my, my, my Jesus would agree with, with you, and, and my Jesus would agree with, with you until you begin to realize your Jesus doesn't really stand for anything. Controversy reveals whether we trust Christ and follow Christ or not. And in this case, this man's faith just took a leap when he was faced with the controversy of the Pharisees, and he has gone from that man Jesus to this is a man from God who speaks the truth. It's pretty cool. But as we're going to see, the testing of this situation that this man is going through is not going to be directed just to him, and this is something else that we have to expect. But we're going to see now this trial moves to also encompass his family, and those around him. And our second thing this morning I want to look at is when you receive, expect rejection. When you change, expect controversy. But secondly, when you receive Christ, expect the rejection of others. 
Look with me at verses 18 to 23. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, that is Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Verse 18 there, see what's happening here. You know, it's something we've seen a bunch. And it would be kind of funny if it wasn't so predictable and sad. Because they asked this man a question, who do you say Jesus is? And he's like, well, he's obviously a prophet. And instead of wrestling then with the identity of Jesus, which was the heart of their original confrontation, even among themselves, right? He's working on the Sabbath. He can't be good. Well, he's doing miracles. He's got to be at least worth looking into more. Who do you think he is? He's a prophet. Well, who are you? Right? They, they switch from a trying to wrestle with the identity of Jesus to, well, let's, let's wrestle with the identity of the blind man. Let's make that the issue. And so they send for the man's parents to appear. Let's not summon character witnesses to Jesus. Let's not get to the bottom of who Jesus is. Let's summon witnesses to get to the bottom of who this man is. And they bring the parents in, have them appear, and first they ask if the man is indeed their son. And fair enough. But I, they just have to add that little snarky line, who you say was born blind. You say. Then they ask a question the formerly blind man has already repeatedly answered. And how does he now see? And the, the formerly blind guy in the corner has got to be going, oy vey. <laughs> I've spent all day telling you exactly clay, eyes, wash, see. I mean, it's really simple, guys, right? They're somehow hoping that even if this man was born blind, that there's another explanation for how he's seeing. Maybe, maybe Jesus didn't do a miracle. Maybe yesterday he fell off a fence and bonked his head and I can see. They're hoping there's some alternative explanation for what has happened to this man, anything but another undeniable miracle by Jesus. And when the parents respond in verse 20, see how afraid they are. See their fear there. They're willing to respond to the first question, is this your son? Yes. Whom you say was born blind? Uh, he was born blind. And this is touchy territory for them because recall when somebody was born blind, they assumed one of two things was true. The person who was born blind had managed to sin in the womb somehow, or the parents had sinned so much God was judging them with the blind child. And so they had lived under this cloud of suspicion, and they're like, really? You've been giving us a hard time our entire time as parents of this guy because he was born blind, questioning whether we're a bunch of sinners, and now you're asking, oh, was he really blind? Right? So, yes. But that second part of the question, 
How is it that he now sees? They don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. They don't even want to conjecture. And so they push the conversation back to their son. And it's hard to imagine that this man has not run home as soon as that miracle took place to tell his family the good news. Jesus, open my eyes so I can see. Especially since when the parents are brought in, the first thing they say isn't, what? He can see? Right? They, they already know. They already know that this has taken place. But they're like, we, we have no idea what happened. We have no idea who did it. Ask him. Right? I'm, I'm thinking this is unlikely to actually be the case. Here, before the Pharisees, this man's own parents will not stand by him. Why? Fear. Fear of being put out of the synagogue. Fear of being culturally canceled. To be put out of the synagogue was a really, really big deal in this culture. It meant you were cut off from the social, cut off from the spiritual, and cut off from much of the civil part of the Israelite life. You couldn't go to the synagogue on Sunday, which means none of your friends want to invite you over to the dinner party because, well, I mean, one of the rabbis might show up and I can't be caught hanging around with the guy they've kicked out of the synagogue, so you, you need to run along now. I don't really want to hire you to work for me since you know, you're obviously a sinner who can't even participate in, in worship on Sunday. You get forced immediately to the fringes of society and of culture. It was a big deal. It meant shame, tremendous shame in an honor culture. And the parents of this man born blind, they decided we're not going to risk it. Because word has gone out. The Pharisees are still debating what to make of Jesus. But there's one thing they've already concluded. If anybody dares suggest he's the Messiah, they're done. They're done. It's that. You can have any color as long as it's black approach, right? We encourage freedom of speech as long as you choose it from our list of free words. As someone in our sermon prep time said this last Tuesday, these Pharisees are like ancient day fact checkers with biased conclusions. And you see that. Our, our, our culture still experiences that today. You may have seen the dust up over Chris Pratt this last week. Right? When... People started dogpiling. Chris Pratt's got to go because he's a Christian, and that means he must hold to all of these terrible Christian views on different social issues. And then his friends actually tried to stick up for him. And instead of people saying, oh, you know what, maybe we misunderstood this guy, they said, well, then you must be bad too. And the, the message is clear. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, even in our culture, we'll cancel you. If you want to defend somebody who's a follower of Jesus, we'll cancel you too. And a lot of people are saying, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. That leads us to our lessons from this section this morning. First is this, Jesus divides us from the world. Jesus divides us from the world. When we begin to take a stand for Jesus and to act like Jesus, that draws negative attention from a world that is hostile to Jesus as both Savior and as Lord. And so don't be surprised 
when you're drawn from your experience with Christ in the emotional fire of beholding your Savior like molten metal drawn from a furnace, and then the first thing that happens is something starts pounding on you. And don't be discouraged either. This is not to damage you. That's how you shape molten metal. That's how you work it to make something more durable, more useful, and more artful. And it is one of God's go-to tools throughout history to draw men hot with fresh faith and to immediately plunge them into the quenching experience of rejection by the world because it solidifies the fact that you have to have an allegiance to Christ or the world. And that's ultimately a good thing. And don't be surprised when the fact checkers come for you and critique all of your views on everything. Don't be surprised when the corporate policies seem to target your faith. Don't be surprised when your school decides this week we're celebrating something that is sinful, so you can't celebrate it, but if you don't, then we're going to consider you a hater. Don't be surprised. When you receive Christ, expect a world that hates Christ to extend some form of warm rejection towards you. But here's the thing. Jesus also sometimes divides us from our own family. As Christ said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. When you follow Christ, you may come to find that those relationships that are most important to you leave because they are unwilling to be with the one whose heart belongs wholly to another. Your excitement for Christ may not always be your spouse's excitement for Christ, and some of you have experienced that. Your heartfelt email or that letter you sent to your friend about Jesus may be ignored or responded to with sarcasm or anger. You youth and you children this morning, you may find that when you share Jesus with your friends, they just don't care, or they think you're weird, or they think you're making things awkward, or they just start, this is the, the most popular thing to do in an age of cowards, they just start ghosting you and unfriending you. Rejection hurts. In fact, rejection is one of the most painful experiences common to man since relationships are so central to the design and health of our soul. We must remember this. The one who has turned to Jesus will never face his rejection. The loss we may experience of relationships around us should only underscore how precious, unending, and ever-growing our union with Christ truly is. Facing rejection causes us both to stand up and to stand out for Jesus. And for this man so recently granted physical sight, he's about to see Jesus more clearly than he ever has before and experience another rapid burst of growth 
in his faith, and that is going to come out of the experience of rejection, even standing there listening to his own parents, unwilling to back up his own story of how he came to see. And so thirdly this morning, we see that when you proclaim, expect persecution. When you change, expect controversy. When you receive Christ, expect rejection. When you proclaim truth, expect persecution. Look with me at 24 down to 34. Begin in 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? This would have been a fun scene in a movie. Uh, I wish I'd like to see this, this film because you know what's going on. You know, if you're the director, the music's building tension, right? The camera's whipping back and forth as they exchange their dialogue. They're zooming in slowly as the characters are walking towards each other. We're building towards the confrontation. This man here is summoned again, and, and just check out that opening salvo from the Pharisees. What a ditch is to the Grand Canyon, irony is to whatever you call this opener. (laughs) Right? Give glory to God, they begin with. Jesus had already told us, the purpose of this man's life is that the Father's works would be seen in him. His purpose is to show the glory of God in his life in response to the miraculous work of Jesus Christ. And it's like the Pharisees are teeing him up. Give glory to God. It's like they're reading his scene cue. It is your turn to go and give glory to God. Wow. Of course, the Pharisees then have to add that last little bit because we know that this man is a sinner. And the implication is clear. The way that we demand you give glory to God is by denouncing Jesus as a sinner. Well, the man isn't taking the bait, but he is being cautious, right? He claims, hey, I don't know Jesus' spiritual track record. It's kind of a, you know, we just met. I don't really know this guy. Bit of a ploy here. But he says, here's the one thing I do know, and it's all I need to know for right now. I was blind. Now I see. And once again, the Pharisees, it's like an allergic reaction, shrink away from dealing with the supernatural reality they are confronted with faster than a secular scientist shrinks away from intelligent design. Instead, they try to redirect the conversation again to the details of the man's story. It's like saying, well, uh, before we deal with that, uh, let's review our notes again. What was your story again? I want to go back over. And I tend to think that the man is getting kind of fed up at this point. He's fed up with the hardened unbelief and he's realizing that no matter of playing it safe is going to avoid a full confrontation with the Pharisees. He has to pick a side. And oh boy, does he pick a side. This is fun. Look at verse 27. He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? (laughs) They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. 
We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. So we can't hear this man's tone, obviously, from the text, but am I the only one that thinks this sounds kind of cheeky? Oh, you want to hear how Jesus opened my eyes again, do you? There wouldn't be any hidden agenda here, would there? Are you just eager to follow Jesus? You don't want to miss any details of what he did so you can give him glory for how he miraculously healed me? And their response makes it clear he nailed him. That he absolutely struck home with these words. And notice also that they have pegged now this entire conversation into an us versus Jesus paradigm and they say you are his disciple we in contrast are disciples of moses and you know when they said that they puffed out their chest a little bit they're nodding to each other yeah we're disciples of moses team law is in the house (laughs) they appeal to the fact God had clearly spoken to Moses, and therefore the law of Moses was trustworthy. But they did not have the same confidence in Jesus. They claim not to know where Jesus is even from. And surely they would have known that Jesus came from Galilee. It's likely they would have even known more specifically that he had grown up in the town of Nazareth. Just a smidgen of research would have revealed Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And considering how much of a talking point Jesus was all around Israel, you would think that they would have taken the time to do that and figure out where this guy was from. But I don't think they're really referring primarily to Jesus' origins geographically here. I think it's likely this was meant to be sort of a scandalous hint back to the fact that they thought Jesus' parentage was in question. We don't even know if this guy is really a Jew. At least a whole Jew. In any case, this argument from the Pharisees is going to go from what they think is a slam dunk to getting slam dunked in a New York minute. Because just listen to this formerly blind man's final reply. And preemptively, let me say, wow. Look at verse 30. The man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing. (laughs) I love that. Here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So with what is becoming this man's characteristic wit and sarcasm, and I'm tempted to shoehorn a little bit too much allowance for wit and sarcasm personally from, or at least sarcasm, I don't know about wit, uh, from this example, so don't go too far. But he replies, hmm, let me see, this is a really amazing thing. You guys can't figure out the Sunday school answer to such an easy question. And he lays out the facts for them. Contextual fact. As Jesus and his disciples stood near while they were debating the source of his blindness, that man had almost certainly overheard Jesus stating, God the Father intended to perform his works in the blind man, and that all that Jesus did was the work of the one who sent him. In other words, the blind man knew that Jesus was specifically claiming to do his work in miracles on behalf of the Father. 
Contextual fact. Experiential fact. Secondly, the miracle actually happened. Jesus really did open his eyes. Third, theological fact. And this is a theological fact he had probably learned from some of the Pharisees standing in that very room with him as they had taught these things in the synagogue. As David prayed, if I regard sin in my heart, you will not hear. God's not in the business of hearing and responding to sinners, but to God-fearing and obedient messengers. Historical fact. This isn't the kind of miracle someone could forfeit to trick you into following a false teacher. Nobody but nobody heals a person born blind from birth. And you can imagine he's heard that his whole life when he and his parents would go to the doctors. Can you do anything? Nobody's ever managed to reverse blindness from birth. And he goes to the Pharisees. Can you pray for me? You're born in sins because you're blind and nobody has ever managed to reverse blindness from birth. His whole life he knows nobody heals the people born blind from birth, but it's happened. This is historically inexplicable. Conclusion, Jesus is from God. Otherwise, Jesus couldn't have done what he did. And it's really that simple. This man's faith has bloomed from talking about the man who is called Jesus to boldly arguing Jesus is sent from God himself. The opposition he has faced has caused his faith to flash, grow, and bloom before our very eyes. And we won't see the full flower of it until next week. But what a marvelous transformation we've been able to behold already. Truly, he has given glory to God indeed. So how then will the Pharisees respond to this simple but profound statement? Well, we know the pattern. And we know the answer is they won't respond to his statement. They'll redirect. Look at verse 34. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? So they put him out, not out of the room, out of the synagogue, out of the cultural life, out into the cold. The Pharisees don't take spiritual lessons from sinners or the children of sinners. And if this man was born blind, it had to have been one or the other in their opinion. They don't even care to listen to the substance of his statement. So they put him out of the synagogue, barely a few days into his life as a seeing man, He's already cut off from his culture and he knew that was coming because he knew like his parents knew, if you claim Jesus is the one sent from God, you're out of here. But he's made his choice. He's taken his stand. And though he's been cut off from everything he had looked forward to finally being a part of, as we're going to see next week, he made the right choice. He made the right choice. Many things to consider here, but let me close with just a couple brief ones. First, God works through human weakness and disability. Good reminder here, those with disabilities can be invisible or ignored very easily in our culture as well. But boy, does God seem to have a special love of showing himself off through the lives of those he in his wisdom creates with the unique challenges that create a context for his power to be made known. That's the kind of God we serve. 
Sometimes God is glorified by opening blind eyes, but more often he is glorified by proving that eyes are not needed to accomplish his will. And our church needs to be a place where those with disabilities and challenges are valued in the way that God values them. Secondly, pick your peace. Pick your peace. Peace with God or peace with the world. Pick one. Pick one. Don't try to figure out how to balance everything out in life so you can have the best of all worlds because you can't have the best of all worlds. To love this world is to be an enemy of God. To be God's friend is to be hated by this world. We must choose. No heart can serve two masters. This man chose boldly, clearly, convincingly, and so must we. And finally, cultivate your faith. Cultivate your faith. Faith, like all good gifts, is from God. However, as is true of so many parts of the Christian life, it is a work of God that we have the blessing of investing our whole heart in. When we come to points of decision, it is worth asking, how can I in this best express trust in Jesus? And that's not, you know, encouraging reckless foolishness. Oh, I know how to trust Jesus. Sell everything I own. Give everything to the poor. Me and my family are going to live free and naked in the public park. You're going to be a bunch of human icicles, only standing testament to the fact that you're foolish. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. Are my financial priorities an expression of faith in Jesus? Are my conversations full of truth in love? Or am I manipulating or pacifying to create an artificial peace? Are my hobbies and entertainments glorifying to God? Or do I not trust Jesus to satisfy me as well as other pleasures? Am I willing to be fired, unfriended, rejected, belittled, hated, mocked, ignored, teased, pitied, slandered, or canceled for Jesus. Remember, the one who calls us to leave the things of this earth behind to journey towards heaven for him is the one who left the things of heaven behind to journey to earth for you. And the one who comes to him by faith will never be cast out of his presence. To know Christ, the fellowship of his sufferings, and the power of of his resurrection, as Paul taught us, is far better than anything or anyone else. And so by the grace of God, through many trials and tears, the rare and precious gem of our faith is grown, and only in heaven will it be able to fully catch the light and radiate as it should. But even now, it is beautiful to behold and brings glory to Jesus. So have you decided... To follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Let's pray. Father, we desire that our lives would stand, as we are even about to sing and be reminded of again upon the solid rock of Christ. For indeed, even if we have tried to build our lives upon the sands of this world, they change so quickly. And that which we thought was sturdy is soon gone. But Christ remains forever, and we in him have the hope of life eternal. And may with that great joy in our hearts, we be ready to face a world of controversy, 
rejection, and persecution, counting Christ better by far than all of the pleasures and riches of this world.